Shalom and welcome to another in our series of podcasts from Temple Beth Am, a dynamic center for conservative Judaism in Los Angeles. So the Psalms range, I will say that the Psalms range in age from 1000 to about 500 BCE. Okay, we know that there are Psalms that were written after the return to Jerusalem uh, in the Persian period. And that's roughly 500. They talk about rebuilding Jerusalem at that point. So, and other ones are very old from the language, uh, content, uh, and so forth. Um, but it's not always relevant. It, you know, sometimes it's important, but sometimes it isn't. Because we're really going to look at content, language, structure. And actually, the whole purpose of this is to help you understand that by looking in depth at the structure of the psalm, and, and I, you can even get this from the translation, because at least you'll understand how themes and words are going to work, interrelate. Or obviously, if you can read the Hebrew, and it, but the other thing you've got to do is also just, when the Hebrew is read, listen to it. Because sometimes you will hear sounds that even though you may not be able to understand, the sounds will be similar. This word will sound like that word. This this sequence of words will sound like that sequence of words. Do you understand what I'm saying? So if you hear that, mm-hmm. right, you understand then that there's something structural, something poetic that's uh-huh. going on in the Psalms. Okay. Remember, the Psalms are poetry. Okay. One of the basic structural elements of biblical poetry is what's called parallelism, mm-hmm. right? The, the a, a phrase or a sentence will be divided into two parts, part A and part B, and they will either uh, they they can be where the theme is repeated in slightly different language. It can be where the second part contradicts the first part, or it can be where the second part adds something to the first part. So there's three different ways that that can work. But if you listen to the rhythms, because there are rhythms based upon the number of syllables or words, you can hear the poetry. So you got to keep in mind we're reading poetry here. And that's important to understand what it's saying. They're poets. Poets are not always what you would call, uh, you know, uh, court recorders, where they write down all the details exactly as they were said. They take liberty, right? And you and and these psalms are written that way, so you can't understand it as 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 being uh, like a law code, which seeks you know precision in one way or another. These are, this is art, okay. The fact is, and some of you who've studied some prayers with me, you've heard me say this, some prayers, some prayers that seem to be narrative are actually poetic. There are many prayers in the Siddur where you've got segments that literally are mini poems in the middle of the prayer. Okay, so the, the impact, and you have many prayers that are structured, and they're not intended to be poems, but they're structured like a poem with a two-part sentence. So the influence of the book of Psalms 
not only on ideology, but even liter on literature, has been very profound. Okay, so this is all by way of introduction. I'm not in this instance trying to play around and figure exactly what century a psalm was written. I want you to understand the ideas and the way we get the ideas from the language itself and from the structure. Okay, so now we're going to begin with Psalm 8. The first thing I want you to do is spend a few minutes and read it over, whether you read the Hebrew or the English or both, or you want to go back and forth, I'll give you time. First, read it over and just get the sense of what it is trying to get across, okay? So do that now. All right. So now let's just look at the very beginning, the very first uh, phrase. It's actually the first sentence. La matzeach al agitit mizmor le David. For the leader on the gitit, a psalm of David. So here right away you see that it is presumed to have been written by David. By the way, why was David known as a as a as a singer of psalms? Why Dafka David? It's the only king that's associated with this. Because he was a musician earlier. He was a musician, right? If you read the book of of, Sam, uh, of uh, Samuel, right? And the, the, as a, as a youth into his, I don't know how old he was. Remember, he was the guy who was brought in to calm King Saul down when he would go into his fits of, of anger, right? And he played this, the harp. So he was a musician. So that's why Psalms are associated with him. I mean, I, I'm not, I can't remember the names, but there are a number of Mesopotamian rulers who were known to have been poets. Okay, and you can study history and you'll find throughout history there have been kings who were very musical, kings who wrote poetry. And so it, it's not it's not an impossibility that David could have written a number of these psalms. Absolutely. Okay. Scholar, scholars think he did. Yeah, some of them, but it's hard to know which ones. It's hard to know. Okay. Rabbi, was the was the Gitit like a harp? Or yeah, well, that's know what it was. Question. Nobody knows. <laughs> the assumption that many many contemporary and even some traditional scholars have, some of the medievalists, that it was an instrument that was played in the town of Gat, which was actually a Phoenician town in biblical times. Goliath came from the town of Gat, so it's really ironic that you have David playing a uh -huh. instrument that was invented in the town of Gat by Phoenicians. When he will eventually come in contact and, you know, face to face with one of the great, uh, GT, uh, uh, warriors, Goliath. And of course, as we know, kill him. So who knows? But it was seen, everybody assumes it's some kind of an instrument. Uh, uh, okay. So, so, um, I may not say, if I'm not today, the mistaken today, a conductor is called a Menatseach, a conductor of, of an orchestra. So that term is still in use. Okay, now look at the second line. The second line actually has two separate statements in it, but they're separate, but they're connected, okay? And you'll see, this is an instance where you find that the second, the second one actually adds something to the first. So, Adonai Adonai ma'adir shimcha b'chol ha'aretz. O Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. Okay, now... Look at the words, okay? Now, obviously, when the psalm was written, what we use as Adonai for God's name was not necessarily in use. 
So we can't include that in what I'm about to say, because that when you see a hey there or something like that or two yuds, it's an abbreviation for the four letter name of God. Okay, which is not Adonai. And in case you don't know it, that's the fact. We don't know how to pronounce God's name. We're not supposed <clears throat> to pronounce God's name. So the rabbis substituted and maybe even pre-rabbinic the term Adonai for it. Those of you who read Torah or Haftarot will know what I'm talking about because there's some times when you have, um, the, you know, Adonai and then, and in God's name, the traditional reading is Adonai Elohim. So the formal name of God, the four letter name of God, Yud Hey Vav Hey, right? Is in that instance, we're told by the vocalization, read it as Elohim. Then you have Adonai Elohim. Okay. Anyway. But so, so forget about the Adonai here. It's, it's a, it's a Hebrew word that begins with a Y sound, a Y sound. But listen here. Adonainu ma'adir bechol ha'aretz. You've got olives, right? Adonainu adir ba'aretz. The repetition of the sound. Keep in mind poetry here. All right. So you got to look for things like that. And it's very often in these poems, it's not incidental, right? It's not simply that those are the words that were available. They're intentional. Okay. Now, adir means strong or majestic. Okay. So how powerful, how majestic is your name in all the earth? So it begins with a statement about God and God's relationship to the earth. But look at the second half. Asher You whose splendor is set above the heavens. Right? So this tells us about God. Where is God's power and presence reflected? Where do we sense it? Where do we see it? Where do we feel it? In the earth and in the heavens. Right? So this is a universal God. Right? This is the God of Genesis chapter 1. Creator of heaven and earth. Right? Okay? I see your hand, Bart. Just a second, okay? Bert. I mean, okay, hold on. All right? But now, I want you to go down to the last line and look at it. What Same thing, no heavens. What? Same thing, but no heavens. Right. But look, but what is it, what is it creating? It's, it's called an inclusio, a structure that includes, that, 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 that designates this is the beginning and the end of this often called a frame. Okay, so this psalm is framed by a repetition of the same words. All right? And you're going to see as we go through the psalm that there's going to be a shift from earthly to heavenly in the course of the psalm, or actually heavenly to earthly, right? Which is interesting because in in, in verse 2, the heavens are repeat. The, the earth, rather, is repeat is mentioned before the heavens. Look at verse two. The reference to the earth. Right. Okay. But but it's set up this way to create the frame. Now, very often when you have a frame like this, it's an it's a it's an indication. This is something that's important. Right? You think when you put a, when you put a photograph in a frame, why do you do it? What are you going to do with it? 
If you frame it, you're going to hang it on the wall. Completeness. Why are you going to hang it's completeness? But why are you going to hang it on the wall? So you can see it. You can see it because it's meaningful to you. It's got some sort of power to it, some significance. So very often when you see a, a biblical passage that has a frame around it, it's a sign that, think of a neon sign on the outside of something very important, flashing, blink, 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 okay? That's what this serves as. Okay, so this is significant here. It's exceptionally significant. Okay, Bart. Uh, can I, you, I call you Bart. I don't know. <laughs> I don't know. That's sounds, okay. You can tell me anything you want, Rabbi. Sounds more cowboyish. Bart. Yeah, okay. <laughs> Bart. Klein. Uh, yeah. I, I, I've had trouble understanding what the English word name has in this context. I wonder if you could talk about the translation of Shin. Oh, Shin, yes. Okay. It's name. Right. I mean, it's not the label. It's not God's name in right. any sense. Remember this, name means religious divine power. The book of Deuteronomy, some of you have studied this with me. In the book of Deuteronomy, how, with respect to God's presence, okay, both deal with the laws of the sanctuary, right? And sacrifices to one degree or another and festivals. Yes, temple, sanctuary related things. Okay. How is the book of Deuteronomy radically different from those kinds of references in all the other books of the Torah? Jerusalem is the center. Well, the, the, well, none of the books of the Torah refer to Jerusalem. No, but it, it has one place as opposed to Bamakoma, Sher Yibchar, the place where he will ultimately choose. All right, right. So, so in Deuteronomy says it's only Jerusalem. Let's mm. say only the one place. So that's one way that the Jerusalem center is different. In the other ones, we know that there were other places where there were multiple places where Israelites worshipped. Okay. And then the statement is clear. Genesis chapter 12, you may only go to that one place and you may only offer sacrifices in that one place. All right. So that's one. Very good. What else? How else is the Jerusalem center different? When you read of the um, sanctuary in the other books of the Torah, what is it that is there that represents God? What is it called? The the ark. The what? The mishkan. The mishkan. In the mishkan. What's in the mishkan? The aron. The, the tablet. Well, no, the, the the tablets and the aron. Yeah, but what is it that there is a the presence? Ah, presence, the presence of God. Right. The, the, the rabbis called it the Shekhinah, right? Mm-hmm. Okay. Some spiritual presence. The cloud. That which the high priest cannot see. Yom Kippur, when all the smoke is bellowing up and he goes in. Because if you look at it, you're going to die. Right? So there is something there. Right? What does it say in the book of Deuteronomy? There's no mention of a presence. It says, The place where I cause my name to be, where I place my name, God's name in some way, which we are not, we do not know for sure. 
God's name is in the sanctuary, not God's presence. The divine, in Deuteronomy, the divine presence is in the heavens above. Okay? And for example, at the, when the Torah is given, it doesn't say that God's presence, a cloud came down on the mountain, that God's presence came down on the mountain. It doesn't say that. The voice comes from the fire, but it nowhere says that God descended. The fire, the fire on the mountain is like a broadcasting station where God is at the station up heaven, up in heaven. He's got a local, he's got a, a, uh, a loudspeaker <laughs> plugged in. This is in Deuteronomy, right? In that fire and the voice comes out, but the presence is up. Okay. My point here is then that the, this, the shame, this is getting back to that question, Bert. The shame is associated with divine presence and power. It's a kind of a surrogate. But it was believed that the name had power. That's why we can't use it. It's always struck me, though, that the the English word name is a bad translation. I don't know that it really expresses what you were just saying. No, it doesn't. But the fact the closest you can get because a shame is a name. Yeah. Identifier. It's an identifier. So you can say from the Deuteronomic perspective, it's an identifying factor that's there in lieu of God. It's amorphous. It may be intentional, what you're saying. We can't grasp it, especially with respect to God. Are we expected to understand everything about God? No. A question, does name have any meaning without human beings? Because it always struck me that name is a connecting thing, a way that we that that human beings connect with God. God doesn't need a name, but God has a name. Yud Hey Vav Hey. God has many names. Yeah, but the God's personal name is Yud Hey Vav Hey. That's it. Isn't that for us? Um, I don't know. It's written down. It's in the written down in the Torah. I mean, it just name to me always was no, remember, like a human God, connection to God. When when God when Moses asks, "What's God's name?" Remember, right? What does God say? I'll be whatever I am. All right. Yeah, sure. And he says, "Tell him, yes, sent you." <laughs> okay, so it means that God is defining God's self with a name. That has to do with existence. If you look at the four-letter name of God, it has to do with existence. I'm of the school that says it's got three. Right? Was, is, and will. That's eternity. Rabbi David Aronson of Blessed Memory uh, used to use, when he talked about God, he, he would say the eternal. And I think that's the best translation I can find for the four-letter name of God. So it's not, it is amorphous, right? It's, 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 it, that's a grammatical statement or it's, it's a chronological, but it's beyond our comprehension. So the fact that you and I can't understand what the name really means, maybe that's the way it's intended to be. Rabbi? Wait, Rabbi. I had, oh, Joel's hand was up first. Hold on just a second. I just wanted to reference the very end of the Alenu, what we all sing together. And what we're supposed to get from that, that God will be one and his name will be one. What, it's similar. It's, to- yeah, it's a, it's a very, right. It, that is 
I think what it means that it, the, the the expressions of what God represents will be unified. In other words, there will there will be a cohesiveness to the comprehension of God that heretofore has been lacking. Okay, that's good. I mean, and when you consider that idolatry taking um, my Bible 101 class, it starts tomorrow. Those of you who've taken it, you know what I'm talking about. Idolatry continued to be a real issue in the Jew, in the Israelite community down to the destruction of the first temple continuously. And the prophets say so. Jeremiah and Ezekiel, right, are the last prophets before the destruction. They say so over and over again. They're telling the truth. So the problem was, and that's, that's a diffusion of it, right? There, when you say it's all unified, means every aspect of our faith in God will be unified. But what does that mean? I, I, I have a feeling that a lot of things that we take for granted are ways of expressing, expressing that ultimately our little brains cannot comprehend the fullness of what God is about. And we have to live with that reality. You know, there's a, there is a um, statement in the Talmud, if I, if I understood God, I would be he. Mm. Keep that in mind. Yes. I was just going to put in what Rashi says. You talking? Yes. Can't you hear me? I didn't see your mouth moving. Go ahead. Oh, sorry. (laughs) Um, I was just going to mention what Rashi says, which I think complicates it. How mighty is your name? More than the strength of the measure of earthlings, the earthlings did not deserve that you should cause your shekhinah to rest upon them, which connects name to Shekhinah. And, yes, uh, but that's Rashi. Yes. That's not Deuteronomy. That is not Deuteronomy. That's Rashi. Right. Yeah, of course. Well, so that's the unification you're talking about. Yeah, right. Exactly. But, <clears throat> I mean, we could go on about this. I want to move off of it. But read the Bible. It's, it's clear that the, the amorphous concept of what God is, is something that humanity has been trying to figure out ever since they came up with the concept of a single God. Much easier if you're a pagan, right? Because say, this is this, this is this, this is this. I see it, I touch it. Easy, right? Or a Catholic. Caters to all your senses. So what do you do with the God? We're going to, you know, when you call, when God calls God's self Elohim, a sing, you know, read Genesis chapter one, read the Bible. Whenever Elohim is used, talking about God, the verbs are all singular. Elohim is a plural form. Go explain it. I have an explanation. I'm not going to deal with it right now. It's not our topic. But, yeah, go explain it. All right, moving on. Okay, but here now you've got to look at the getting back to the to, to verse 2, because we we got a lot to cover here. Um. So your your glory, your your splendor, is above the heavens. So he's a he's down on earth and he's a, above the heavens, even above the heavens. What does that mean? Above the heavens. That's a good question. That's my question. Okay. I've never considered that to. I never considered that to be physical. There are multiple. No, I mean the in the the uh, if you if you read Bible scholarship. Um, you'll you'll see this. They talk about it. The Shamayim that God created in Genesis one was made out of the rakia, 
the firmament. That's where God placed the sun, the moon, and the stars. And in that particular view of the universe, the firmament was intended for one purpose, in addition to hanging the stars there. What was the other purpose? To keep the water above from inundating down below so that you could reveal the earth, right? In in Genesis chapter 9, when the heavens open, no, it's not 9, 6. When the heavens open, what does it say? The sluices in heavens open. They oh God opened the trap doors. So what came out? All the water that was stowed up there, stored up there, came out. And you had a mabul. Okay? So that was the heaven. Where is God? Talking about Alenu. In the heaven above everything. God and the angels lived in a totally spiritual place somewhere out there. So there were multiple heavens. Okay. So that's, so when it says here, he's above. Yeah. That this, this is a kind of a biblical statement that reinf- would reinforce that notion of what heavens are. God's presence, he's above it all. That's what it says. Right. Al Hashemayim. Not mitachat lashamayim, not below. Okay, so that's what it is. So this, but this opens up now. Look, you. I'm going to get back to verse three in a minute because that's a real challenging one. But look at verse four in particular. What does it say? What's verse talking about? Again, the heaven, right? When I see your heavens. The work of your fingers. Why does it say, well, look, hold on. What does he see? The moon, the stars. And the stars, right, that you set in place. All right? I mean, this is a reaction we all have. Yes? Have you seen the Milky Way? Have you laid down on the side of a hill and looked up at the sky when the Milky Way was out? And you saw all those gazillions of stars, those little lights up there, with an occasional uh, meteor coming through, you know, falling stars, a moon. But better off a crescent moon, because if it's a full moon, it blots out a lot of the stars. The glare is too bright. You know what I'm talking about, yeah? Mm-hmm. And you say, there's God, right? I mean, you look at there, that's where God is, Yeah. Well, this is saying God is really above it all. But this is what God created. But why does it say your fingers? Instead of Usually your you talk about hands. Granted, this is a metaphor. We know that. God doesn't have fingers or hands. At least not the standard God that we in which we believe. <clears throat> okay? So why does it say fingers? And there it is. Have you thought about it? It's creation, maybe, referring to... Creation? Well, yeah, but creation could be hands, right? Can't, there's more. God, is, God because, is so great. God is so great that he doesn't even need to use a hand. He can just use a finger to create something. Possibly. Could it be that 10, 10 is already an enormously symbolically significant number? So fingers are, in fact, a way of alluding to 10. 
It's possible, but here it doesn't say 10. It just says fingers, okay? Yeah, but I understand. It could be looking at the hands, the fingers. We use fingers for different things, and they're important. Yes. Okay, Mike Harris. Yes, uh, fingers, because fingers are ideal for detailed, precise work. Exactly. I I happen to agree with that interpretation. Yes. You think about it. I I see your hand. Okay, just a second. Um, You think about it. You're looking at tiny little things here now, right? You're not looking at full, round globes. I mean, the moon itself is a product of very delicate movement, isn't it? Right? If you look at it when it's a new moon, it's a little tiny sliver, right? Then it gets bigger and bigger, and then it gets smaller and smaller. So you need to have a hand that can expand and contract. And the fingers are part of that, important part of that. But details, yes, good. Okay, Rick. Um, hi, um, in the Exodus story, the um, Egyptians, uh, when they're seeing one of the plagues, they, they say, uh, Elohim. this is the finger of God. So um, uh, that's the only other, uh, I mean, we don't like to anthropomorphize God, but um, that's one phrase that comes to mind about the finger doing the plagues. So um, it's, there, it's, it's it, it, there too. It's a it's a very delicate thing. Wasn't that with lice? Yes. Little tiny thingies. Right. Details. Details. So I think that may be consistent with that, actually. Thank you. That's a good that's a good point. <laughs> yeah. So okay. it's delicate it's delicate work here, right? And and so you know I, I'm, I'm overwhelmed with this. But look, now, verses four. Put four and, wait, wait, uh, wait, 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 wait. Okay. Go ahead. Somebody want to say something? Yes. Uh, yes. Why can't you put four and two together? Because in four you say, I look up at the heaven and I am astounded by the splendor uh, of it. And that's what two says. How majestic your name in all the earth whose splendor was told over the heavens. Exactly. Yes. That's that's exactly what he's doing. Okay? He's making, literally, you can say, it's it's a kind of a movement from earth to heaven. Verse 3, earth mm-hmm. to heaven, then earth. Right? And it's an intentional bouncing back and forth. Yeah. Which again emphasizes the fact that God's involvement is in all of it, right? The universal power of God. But this is really interesting. Verse 3. From the mouths of infants and sucklings, you have founded strength because of your foes, to put an end to enemy and avenger. What does from the mouths of infants and sucklings have to do with founding strength that defeats enemies? Barrett. Okay. I still... Say it again? Huh? No, no, did you raise your hand? 
I did. Okay. So I want to talk about the word mipi. Yes. Mipi olalim veyonkim isadetaoz. So we can uh, talk about mipi in two different ways. Depends what do we like. So number one, we can say that the word mipi comes actually from the word pe, mouth. And so what is happening to toddlers or lalim, young babies, and yonkim are, to, are infants, what do they do? They know from the very beginning how to suck them with their mouth the milk from their mother, from the very, very beginning. They know this act without anybody teaching them or or doing. So we can say that here is the glory of God. Here is something that God is doing, something majestic, big, that he that babies that were born, they can immediately um with their mouth suck the milk from their mother. So this is one interpretation that I know. Yeah. Um, so Olalim Veyonkim are babies. Yonet is somebody that drinks the milk from his mother, and Olal is a little bit older than just a, a born. Isadeta Oz, Oz is strength, power. So you, here is how we can show your power in the world. That's explanation number one. If we like to say that P relates to the word Pe, which is the word pair in smichut for that word. Yes. Uh, second interpretation for that word, mi P, can be related to the verb um, to tfila. Okay? So, um, okay, but, but fila, um, I want to say, how would I relate it to tfila? That this is a tfila of young babies, young children. And we say that this tfila of young children is actually very pure and comes from innocent um, babies, young children. You should koach on both. Thank you. Two of the most frequently cited ones, because, again, my dear friend Benji Siegel lists all nine of the explanations. But those are the two two very prominent ones, especially this notion of the purity Mm-hmm. The sounds of a child. Vile words don't come from that mouth. Sounds and sounds that are real, that express concern. You know, when they're hungry, they it's the sounds of crying. When they're happy, they gurgle, right? And as they get older, they start to smile, right? And And so all of these sounds are driven by, you know, innocent, totally innocent people. And out of that innocence and purity, what this is saying is, is that the strength that you can, that you need to defeat evil in the world <clears throat> must be grounded in the purity 
of a child's mouth, you can't ground it on evil. If you want to destroy, if you want to rid the world of evil, it has to emerge from a foundation of goodness. Ah. Well, I just want to add that if we understand this this way, then the continuation of this pasu, it just goes, you have this uh, strength and power. But you've made a fa- yasod. This is yeah. the foundation of foundation. this. Exactly. Yes, yes. It's a very, it's an amazing statement. Mm-hmm. It's an amazing statement. And here it is, right there, right in front of you. Okay. There's other, I mean, anybody else want to, did somebody else had a hand up? But they go down, maybe went down. Oh, there. Okay. Uh, Janet. Yeah. So I was thinking um, more um, things that are related to confidence. So when a baby suckles, it's comfort. And and this is something that from the beginning could create confidence that later could be used uh, as a strength to fight enemies. Uh, is that as if, if you know, from the beginning we give this confidence to our children, they grow to become strong and face evil it could be, reality. But I, but I, I'm, uh, how, I'm, I just want to ask you to clarify what is therefore what is the mouth of of the mouth of babies that are suckling at their mother's breast? Where does that? How does the implanting of confidence? Emerge there. Well, the comfort, oh, com- the comfort and giving, giving of the mother to. Well, I want to I pick up on. Yeah. I, can I give it a little twist? Okay. Because I, it just struck me, when a baby cries out from for milk, right, to suckle to get that motion mm-hmm. moving, right, which is instinctive. It's part mm-hmm. of what the baby's born with. That baby is strong. That baby's not going to shut up until you, you know, let him do it. <laughs> it's a statement. True. Of, it's a statement of of self of survival, right? Of of this is what I need to survive. I have the strength to keep me to, to help me survive. And the beauty of it is, it's it's a totally positive thing. Right, it's good for him, and it gives the mother great relief. Look, I'm not a mother, but we have four kids, and Freddie breastfed all four of them. And I know how relieved and happy she was. <laughs> happy as the kids were when they did their job, okay? So the point is, it's the strength. and It's ironic that this there's strength in this demand that the child has for this sustenance, this good thing, this powerfully good thing. And if you can inter, if you can, you know, uh, draw upon that innate strength in the child and help the child develop it in a positive way, the same way that there's a positive that that the sucking milk is a positive action, you can defeat enemies because you have this strength that you know is based upon a solid foundation of goodness. Hurt. Uh I don't understand the Hebrew. My Hebrew is not good enough. But looking at the English, is it possible that this really means the whole life and from, in this case, means starting with 
So it's saying that God, even from the time of a baby onward, you're giving strength to humans to confront the the enemy. There's the in a sense, it's what you're saying, but it doesn't focus on the extension, because as Barod said, Olalim Kim are little tiny babies. So this is the very beginning of the process. Right, but that it, but that it go that this is saying that all the way through life, from the very beginning, God is giving human beings the strength that ultimately will be able to defeat the enemy. Well, no, but this is saying no. This is saying this is the foundation of that strength. Right, the beginning of it. Right, no, but Yesod is really it, it, it's like laying a foundation upon which the strength can be built. That's it, what. Right, as 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 the baby grows up, that was really right. But, well, but but this, but but it's it's focusing on that moment in the child's life. There's no sense of extension. That's the amazing thing. If it were that, I think we we would have thought initially that there would have been some extension. But the the striking thing is that it's not. And Olail and Yonek both focus on that early stage of childhood. That's the ironic irony here. Mm. It's mentioned the two these two words, right? So it's it, this is the foundational thing here on the basis of which you have the strength to be able to to stand up to your enemies. And by the way, notice the, when you use the word oyev, right? And mm. and mitna came somebody in a who's an avenger, right? Those are the opposites of what the child represents. Exactly. Mm-hmm. Right? And so this is the antithesis of that. You can you can remove that kind of evil through the results of the purity and goodness of the beginning. Okay. Uh Rick. Um hi. So um if we pull back and and imagine the audience listening to this, the mothers of the audience who have their babies with them. It's also a, a great um, diatribe against those other religions that would do child sacrifice and and um, were perfectly willing to to kill their kids to to do their re- religious stuff. So this is so beautiful here that 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 the, the strength that we get from starting with the babies and, and keeping them alive. Um, so um, I, I, I like, thank you for bringing that out. I, I, th- this is the clearest thing I've seen in a long time about um, how it's important for kids to be around, you know? Yes, yes, exactly. <laughs> and I can tell you, in the, in the, in the Ro- Greco-Roman world, it was not unusual for parents to expose their kids if there was an unwanted child, they just leave him outside, let him die. Mm. And the Jews never did that. And that was one of the ways that Gentiles, pagans, would distinguish themselves. They would say, look at those stupid people. They save their babies. Yeah. And this is making that exact point. You better believe we save our babies because that's our future. You know? Anyway, yeah, good. Okay. All right. So so this is earthly, Yes. And, and 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 it's it's um then you then you have verse four right with the sun the moon the stars the glory but verse four continues with verse five I mean it leads into it right you'll see that um well we'll get to it Mayanosh kitis karenu uvenadam kitip kedeno now it's going back 
on the the question. It's almost a question to number verse number three. But what is a person? What is a human that you remember that you're aware of, that you remember them, and uh, a human that you you uh, pay heed to him, you take notice of him. Why are humans so important, right? Well, it's almost a question having set forth verse five, 3, right? In verse 3, you say, it's very important that there be little humans because they can create a foundation of strength. But then on verse 5, it says, but still, why do you care so much about human beings? Okay, maybe that's a continuation of that. It's a, it's a rhetorical question. But is it a continuation of the sun and the stars and this magnificent nature, and we're just these puny little people? Right, exactly, right, right, exactly. But it's in a sense, though, also keeping in mind what verse 3 said, because it said you need this foundation. Okay, fine. Yeah, but still, yeah, it's like the, the, the author is throwing in, yeah, but when I see the heavens, what are these people, how can we stack up to that? This isn't Yisker, is important. I'll grant you. But, you know, when I look up at the heavens, why are we so, why are you so concerned about us? Okay, that's what this is saying, yeah? Why are you concerned? By the way, I want to show you something, though. Listen to the words, going back to verse 3. olalim Okay? And then they are the answer to Oyev umitna came. And so look at the word yon kim. Nun puf mem. Right. The word mitna came. Nun puf mem. Look at the word olalim. It begins with a, a o sound. Oyev begins with an, an o. There's poetry here. There's alliteration. Assonance. Okay, and there's rhyme. It rhymes too. Tiz Karenu rhymes with Tif Kadena. Yes. Hebrew doesn't usually rhyme. <laughs> well, it, you'd be surprised though how much rhyming exists in the book. There is absolutely, and you can see this in many of the prayers, where it'll there are a whole sequence of words will have the same ending. Okay, so uh, it's you. Right. It's not used as rigorously as in some of the poetry that we know. But you know, modern poetry does not necessarily include rhymes. Okay, I got Tybal, and then I have Leon. Um, just a fast one, because you said that the book has all sorts of other literary allusions. Does he talk about the about the Hamlet? What? In the does he talk about Hamlet in the context of verse five? Hamlet. Yeah, there's a famous what is man. Oh, oh, oh. Hamlet. That, oh. Ooh, I didn't see it. Wait a minute. No, I don't think so, no. That's a good one. <laughs> That's a good one. Good. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Very good. What a piece of work is man, right? <laughs> How noble in reason. Yeah. Good. Very good. Okay. All right, Leon. Well, there is in, at least in my Hebrew, there is a bar between Olalim Kim, okay, which is kind of a separation. And then you have the Oyevum Itnakem, 
And so there is kind of an opposition between the two. And that matches what Rashi says at Olelim, in which he quotes Job as saying that, uh, you know, it is part of uh, the way, uh, uh, let me just get it, uh, in 16.15 of Job, uh, <clears throat> I sold sackcloth over my skin and I buried my glory in the dust. Saktafarti uh, alai nildi olanti be'afar karni. And Rashi's position is that it shows that the priests come from babies which are usually dirty. Okay. Uh, they're pure but dirty, and that it is the priests' uh, prayers to God that are important and the reason for uh, the importance of men. Okay. <laughs> Thank you, Rashi. <laughs> He's very creative, you know. Look, he loves to look. He loves to look at words. Yes. Uh, I'm sorry. I'm kind of glued to him usually when it's I okay. read. That. It's okay. It's okay. All right. So, and yet, and yes, somebody mentioned the poetry here. Maya nosh kitis karenu, benadam kitit kedenu. Right? Tis karenu, tit kedenu. You know, absolutely. Um, okay. Now, batachasrehu me'at me'elohim, v'chavod v'hadar ta'atrehu. Right? You've made him little less than Elohim, and adorn him with honor and glory. Okay, now. First word, last word rhymes. <laughs> Good. Now you're talking poetry. Good. Right. And by the way, you see, pause. Okay, good. It's A B B A, right? In a sense. Kind but of. This is the, well, this is a, an internal framing. Techasreu te'atrehu, right? Which is interesting, by the way. Techasreu means you've made him less, but when you crown him, you make him taller. Uh-huh. <laughs> so there's absolute opposite at work here. Poetry. Beautiful. But what does Elohim mean? You made him little less, less than what? My book says angels. Yeah, many books say angels. Okay. This is the art scroll. Siegel says God. Yeah. Little less than God. I want to offer a third option. Yeah. The notion of sub gods. In other words, there were in in Israelite tradition, when 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 pagan notions were floating around, whether they actually express themselves in the form of how temples were set up. So, you know, I was at a temple, a mini temple in Arad, remember, where there are two gods. There are two clearly expressions. There are two standing stones, and in front of them are two incense altars. The one we pray to and then we don't want to pray to, (laughs) like the islands with the two synagogues? No. <laughs> same holy of holy. Ah, I got you on that one. They're in the same Kodesh Kodeshim in this mini temple in a fortress. 
which is Israelite. Menene the two Karavim. No. No, but I mean, I know it's not the same, but there's the, the, the two facing each other, no? It's God and God's consort. Oh. Mr. and Mrs. God. <laughs> That's what it is. And there are references in written words in other places that have been found which speak of Hashem and and his and his Asherato, mm-hmm. his, his female. Mm-hmm. So Mr. and Mrs. God, which means multiple gods. There is one such temple. I just had balloons fly <laughs> Northern Israel, where there are five gods, one big one mm. and smaller ones, a pantheon. And so it's very possible that the poet here has in his mind the notion of these sub-gods who dwell in the same realm of God, but are lower. And the realm, and, and actually what it really means then, it's not specifically, I see your hand, uh, AJ, just a second. It's not specifically referring to any god or gods, but it's sort of referring to the, to the, the uh, court of God. Though the denizens, whoever they might be, right? The, the divine, the divine, the divine palace, right? And we humans, are just a cut below that level of divinity. Maybe a better word would be Elohut rather than Elohim. But it says Elohim. But I'm I'm suggesting that it's a poetic carryover of this notion of a pantheon of gods called henotheism, where you have a a leading god and then sub-gods. And so for is for numbers of Israelites, we don't know what the proportions were. Hashem, Yud Vavhe, was the, the boss. And these were his courtiers, his number twos, part of the divinity, but lower than God. And we are just a cut below them. The angels are another expression of that. And yes, angels can be on earth expressions of the divine presence. So it could be angels. It's not, I'm saying it could be. But then he could use the term malachim. That was a term that was widely in use. Not a strange term. Okay? So it's hard to know. And it may be an obscurity that was intentionally put in there because once again, we're dealing with a realm of existence that is unknown to us because we haven't been there yet. And at least as far as we know, nobody's been and come back. So okay, AJ. And, okay. Um, regarding the five that you mentioned, the the archaeological find with the five. One of the theories is that that is actually a the, the standing stones standing upright. The one large and then the four smaller is actually a foot of God or a footprint, and one of the um, non-Jewish temples that features the, 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 uh, one of the features of a, an archaeological find was, um, an entry with a giant footprint. Um, so a lot of times when they see these standing, these stones standing upright, 
with a large stone and then smaller stones by it so that it, it, it's the toes on the foot of the god, whatever, yes. whatever god that is. Um, how that, uh, correlates to, to God, to, um, Adonai and his consort, um, it, they, they may be very, two very different things there because you did have the, the issue of, um, um, the, the consort of Hashem being, um, represented as a tree of life. Um, there's no accident that that, that, that we call Torah tree of life. But you will see the tree of life theme being gradually in, in art and craftsmanship being simplified over centuries, over millennia. Um, and, yeah. and ultimately becoming simply a, a, a pole at, at the front of the temple. Right. Well, and, I think- and ultimately in Deuteronomy being uh, prohibited. Right, but I would I would argue that that notion of the foot of God um, is uh, you've got to show me where that's found um, in in biblical expression. Um, uh, we're not talking about in in this case the the five standing stones are uh, AJ, found in non Jewish archaeological sites. No, but that was no, that was seen as a as a the one I'm talking about is an Israelite site. And and it's very possible that it, depending on the date of it, that they may simply be uh because our temples were structured the the first temple was structured very similarly to non Jewish temples. They yeah, may well, very well have been influenced uh, in, in other ways as well. Right, but but that the point is you have to demonstrate we know that that the existence of multiple deities did exist in the, the Arad is, is one example of that. Um, but this notion of God and the Asherah is something that we find in Hebrew, uh, ancient Hebrew statements uh, that relate to the worship. OK, so yeah, that, that, that's why I'm making a distinction between those two. Yeah, well, I, the 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 sources that I look at, uh, who specialize in this, are arguing that the that five is actually an Israelite site, and that it is it may have been something they borrowed from the pagans, but it, it, if so, but that in its context there, it's set up in a way that would indicate that it is not used to represent a foot, but rather to represent the the divine. And the divine court. That's the argument that they make. So multiple, not just Hashem and consort, but multiple gods, right. not exactly. demigods, yes. not right. demigods, but uh, actual, um, well, but not unlike the Titans or the Olympians. No, I'm not saying demigods in the sense that they're, no, they are gods, but they're yeah. just, they're, they're subordinate gods. In other words, henotheistic struct, uh, concepts, the one God is the most, is the powerful and, and the ruler. And these are his lieutenant gods. 
That's what I'm saying. Sub gods. So they're, they're not, they're, they're of this, they are of a divine nature, but their power and status is that of a secondary deity. And it's interesting to note, by the way, that in the Arad temple, the, the, the second god, the, both the stone and the size of the incense altar are both smaller than that of the large one. So clearly the size, it's a matter of status within the royal court. Okay, Barbara, and then Leon. Well, when you were talking about the gods under the god, or a prime god, it sounded to me like many years ago after you came back from studying Kabbalah, you taught us about the the ten levels with Shekhinah just under and on the two sides. I can't remember all the names, but I just remember that starting with a single at the bottom and then yeah, four and then one at the top, which was God, if I remember correctly. Uh, close, right? Yeah, but and of course that has it's a it's an indirect spin off of something like this, but there's a big difference. The within the context of the Zohar, the Sefirot are not seen as entities that are independent. That's a lower expression of God. It's the same God. And and the 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 um the one book of the the one segment of the Zohar that really expresses this in its most developed way, always there every so often is a, a random sentence, but they're they are one, all is one, one is one, that they are a unit unification. Okay? So it's as if you know the, the it, it is the same power source of the same source of spiritual power but with reduced levels, shall we say, of intensity to make, a, I just made that up, okay? But something like that. And, and but it also deals with the personification of, of, uh, of powers within the one God, right? Yeah, right, that's what I thought. Of divine attributes, right? That's so, what I thought, it's yeah. The hierarchy of attributes. The problem, of course, is that the Zohar personifies them, and it makes it sound very anthrop- overly anthropomorphic. Okay, that and that's the confusing thing here. Yeah, but it's it. But at the same time, if you go back to the pagan thinking of the first, of the second, and third century of the Common Era in Eretz Israel. And the other around, uh, there were this, these Gnostic systems that had this notion of semi-gods, lower-level gods, independent entities, right? That are not part of that, that, that were part of the structure, but had their own, you know, they were distinct. And the interesting thing is, in one of the traditions of the Zohar, evil comes into the world because one of the Sephiroth decides on its own to try to do something expression of its power and it was not wasn't authorized and as a result evil came into the world and it flows out of that and that's a very similar to a gnostic notion that comes from like the 4th or 5th century of common era very old where one of the 
uh, entities on her own wants to create rather than dealing with the pair because there's usually male and female. So she on her own arrogated unto herself the authority to create and out came the evil. Very similar. So you can see the, the continuity of history here, but it changed, right? But in a sense, the fact that pagan concepts or, 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 you know, details were sort of reformulated. This is, this the Bible does all the time. The Bible does all the time, right? El Elyon, right? We call, Bible calls God El Elyon. We use it in the Amidah, right? Well, that was the term that was used for the God El of the, the elevated, the elevated God El, the father of the gods, pagan. That's a term. They adapted it. It's called repurposing. <laughs> we repurposed pagan things. We stripped them of their paganism and just kept the whatever. That's what the the Bible does. That that's not cultures do that. That's what happened. Okay, there was was there another hand? I want to finish this up. Okay, yeah, Leon. I'll try to be short. Uh, there are two there are two passages, one in our prayers and one in the, the Bible that specifically talk about this. Just before Noah, you have. Uh, Anshe uh, Hashem, the children of the gods. Oh yes, of course. Fathers of men, and then in the kedusha we have Chayot uh, Hakodesh. Right, but those are the angels. The the Chayot Hakodesh are the um, the angels. That that's a it's a term for the it's the Chayot are not gods. They're not. There, the, the for example, you have in Yechezkel, Perik Aleph, the, the um, angels that support the that carry the chariot uh, have he, four headed their their heads have four faces, okay? And these are called the these are the Chayota Kodesh, okay? What are the four faces? A human, a lion. An eagle and an ox. This is Ezekiel chapter one. Okay. Each one represents the power of the species. The human is the most powerful, right? Lion is the most powerful of, of the uh, four legged animals and the, the wild four legged animals. The eagle is the most powerful bird and the ox is the most powerful of the domesticated four legged animals. Okay, so those are Chayot Kodesh because they are Chayot. Okay, so they're not gods. They're servants. They're angels. Okay, now, so what is, so what are we going to, what do we learn about this, the, this human being? Verse, verse, uh, seven. Tamshi lehu adecha kol shata tachat raglav. Okay, you have made him ruler, rat master. Okay, limshol means to rule. Bemaseyadecha of your uh, of the things that your hands produced. We had maase before up in verse four, but there was God's maase etzbaot. Now it's the humans maaseyad. Those things. No, 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 no. Sorry, it's God's hand. It's still. This is yeah. This is maaseyadecha. So He put us in charge of those things that God made. 
the creatures down here. In other words, these are the creatures of God's hands, right? The stars, the little delicate stars, that's the fingers, right? Because they're so delicate. I mean, they didn't know how big they really were. They, They had no idea that those tiny little stars, you know, were huge compared to the earth. But that doesn't matter. They looked small. All right. But here it's normal creation, right? Right. You have a, you, you created whatever you created. God created the animals, right? His hands did that. You don't need fingers to create an ox that weighs, you know, a thousand pounds. You use your hands for that because you got big things. Yes. Okay. And, and, but here's the thing here again, looking at bodily things, call shata tachat raglav. Right. You have laid them all at God, at, at the feet of the, of the human. In other words, they, they are under our feet. That's a metaphor under our control, under our power. So we have power, right? We have power, rule and power over God's other creatures. That's us. And who is that? Okay. Verse, verse eight. Eight. Sona, which is the same as tzon, it's a variant of the word for sheep. Tzon is tzadi alef nun. I see your hand, Vera, just a second. Okay. Alafim are oxen, right? Kulam v'gambahamot sadai. All of them, so the domesticated and the wild beasts, too. All of these creatures are under our control. And even more, sipor shamayim hayam. The birds of the heaven and the fish of the seas, right? And whatever over or chot yamim, whatever paths that crosses the sea. Okay. Maybe that's referring to dolphins, right? Who, who cross the sea because you see them going on top of the water a lot. Okay. So all of these creatures are under the control of them. Okay. So that, so the question is why? Why have you given us this power? Well, the fact is, it says we have it. We may not understand why God gave it, or maybe we do. Okay, because it concludes, Adonai Adonai How great is, how, how majestic is your name on the land? Who is it that that allows, that makes, that sets the table for the expression of the majesty, it's the human being, the human being who controls all these things down here. We are the ones who can comprehend God. That's what this whole poem is about. We comprehend God's power. And we are the ones then that we are, by controlling the way the world operates, we are expressing that power down here. So as so Rabbi Ben Siegel makes the notion, as the notion he calls the psalm, partnership. That ultimately what this is teaching is, and notice it ends with the reference to the land, not the heavens at which the where where it began, right? Verse the, the second part of verse two, heavens are are gone. Once you get past. Verse four, it's all earthbound. All earthbound. 
And who is the dominant creature on earth? Us. We are, the human. The human. In a sense, it's a reformulating of Genesis chapter 1. Because how does it end? Think about Think. Put this in the background. Genesis chapter 1. How, what's the conclusion of Man. that? What's the final creature? Man. We're all tov mode. The humans. We're our <laughs> presence allowed God to say tov mode. Right? And what is our responsibility? To rule. To take care of all of the above. Exactly. Take care of what's down here. I meant above in the list of creation of uh, yes, animals. No. <laughs> Remember the Psalms. Hashemayim Shemaim Ladonai. To the people. Psalm Hallel, right? Okay, that's the point. So this is the divine plan then is, and that's what this is all about. Our responsibility, right? That's the real major point here. We have a huge responsibility because the stuff down here is in our hand. God made it, but we're the ones that he put in control. Yep. So in a sense, this is a midrash on, on the first chapter of Genesis. I'm, I can't prove it. Okay. But it sounds like it. And I think word, you just did. The word <laughs> in the, uh, grand. But the, but the, the feel of it is. Okay. So amazing, isn't it? it it's, yes. you know, look here, look at just an example. Ver, I see a hand. Uh, Vera, okay, Vera, ask your question. I'll have one final point. Go ahead. I don't have a question. I have two comments. Okay. Okay. Number one, in Pasuk Vav, the last word in that Pasuk is Teatreu. Yes. So you can translate it as crowning. Okay. Keter Atara is yeah, to crown. And then if we start and look at Pasuk Zain, Tamshilehu, so you crown him. So there is like play on words, double vocabulary, like we say in poetry. That's one of another example, like the continuation, how it goes, different Good. vocabulary. Good. Good. And the other comment that I have is that the very last pasuk, pasuk vav, uh, sorry, pasuk yud, if we look at it, it's paced a little bit away, like it's spaced differently. The lines are not together. In poetry, it's called Hatima. Yeah, and, and the Hatima is like a conclusion, like you said. So it's like a summary. So what is the summary of this Tehillim? Adonai Eloheinu Madir Shimcha. Also, in excellent literature and poetry, part of it, we call it Magal Sagur. You start in one verse, one yeah. sentence, and you go a full circle, you explain what you want to say, and you end with the same sentence. 
So we yeah. see it exactly here in Pasuk Aleph, oh, sorry, in Pasuk Bet, Ma Adonai Eloheinu Madir Shimcha, that is the Hatima, the conclusion of this Tehillim. Uh, right, exactly. Uh, <clears throat> but that, the, the fact that it's set up, though, here, it, 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 in, in, in biblical Hebrew, very often when you find this, as I said at the outset, it's the way of showing by creating a frame, Zemashu Chashuk Me'od. But it's beautiful in, in terms of what we are looking in a nice piece of literature. What are we looking for? Yes, that's right. So there is a lot of example, ample example here yes. to show it. Right, exactly. Thank you. Yes, good. But but I think it, it's it's just wonderful. When you hear, like I was, I was just going to quickly point out, Sipor Shamayim with the Hayam over Yamim, right? Yudmem, Yudmem, Yudmem. I mean, you know, again, you're going to say, well, what else is going to be? You know, you could simply say, uh, it's, uh, you didn't have to. You could say it's Siporim with the Hayam, but it's it's the repetition and the structuring of it incorporates these words that are together poetically. And and the whole thing is, is just filled with this stuff. Also, Pasukhet, it's the same thing. Son and Alapim and Behemot. So it is, okay, like you told, you said parallel. This is the parallel in the poetry. Yes. So I, I uh, this is a good, I, I offer it to you okay. as a very good example of a, of a well-written, a consciously put together passage that ultimately carries with it a very important message to the reader who hopefully will be able to decipher it, if only simply by viewing the number of lines that relate to earthly activity as opposed to those which relate to heavenly activity. And the focus here is God is the creator of both, but God expects us to deal with the part where we live very carefully with the power he gave us to maintain it and to maintain it in a way that matches the glory of what we see when we see the world. That the natural law that exists in heaven exists down here as well. And by the way, there's another psalm that does a Psalm 147 which we say every day, describes natural law, God's power in all kinds of expressions of nature. And it ends by talking about the fact that this same God gave law to Israel, meaning natural law and and the divine law to Israel all come from the same lawgiver. And they're all part of the same universe. And one is the responsibility of God to take care of, and the other is our responsibility. So going back to Rabbi Spiegel, uh, Siegel, partnership. That's the relationship between God and humans. And this is a, it's a real, it's a powerful statement. So that's why I included it.
Okay, I will see you next week. And next, you week, want to tell us which psalm you want us to read before yes, next I week? Right now, as soon as I pull my notes out, I will tell you to read read um, Psalms twelve and thirteen. Psalms twelve, they're both short. Twelve and thirteen, because you'll see they are connected. You have been listening to another in our series of podcasts from Temple Beth Am, a dynamic center for conservative Judaism in Los Angeles. If you enjoy these podcasts, we invite you to write a review on the Apple Podcast site or wherever you get your podcasts. For more information about Temple Beth Am Los Angeles, go to tbala.org.